Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, December 17th, 2010. We'll be doing a little Friday light today. Part 5 lecture series that we've embarked on by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, co-host of the White Horse Inn, professor of theology and apologetics at Concordia University, Irvine. Ah, yeah. We've been working our way through Martin Chemnitz's book, The Two Natures in Christ. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and as a result of it, we've got to clean things up. Now, part of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, we don't just complain and go, oh, that's bad. No, no, no. We want to do some corrective work as well well, through a good, sound, biblical instruction. Now, today, it's Friday, and we're going to be doing Friday Light on Friday. Yes, we've I've I achieved it. I did it. I brought it back. Anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to be listening to Part 5 and 6, and we're going to listen to two lectures today. On uh, the two natures in Christ, uh, if you haven't gotten your copy of the book, you really should have your copy of the book. Uh, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see a link on the left-hand side that'll take you to Amazon.com where you can either purchase a Kindle version or if you want to find another way to purchase it and get a copy of it, you can do so there. And uh, and so without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, The Two Natures in Christ. This is part five. Then when we're done with this, we'll take a break and we go to part six on the other half of the break. So here is uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. A side note here, probably next time and more than once till we're done, I'm going to be making available to you outlines of particular chapters, but will not devote any time to them here in class, but just so you've got a complete set. So don't be frightened next time if you all of a sudden see four things. We're only going to look at one. And there are some chapters which we're not going to... I, I didn't bother because the whole chapter was a compilation of quotations from the fathers. That was to say to Rome, just in case you think we're innovating... Let me prove to you from the writings of the fathers that we're closer to the fathers than you are. <laughs> <laughs> Love that attitude. By the way, that's you know those are fantastic chapters where he's quoting the church fathers. 
Notice what he said. In case you think we're innovating, oh, man, the Lutheran reformers took great pains, especially Martin Chemnitz, to show that the doctrines that we were proclaiming, teaching, and confessing were not new innovations, but what the church taught from the beginning. It's a reformation, not an innovation. Yeah, that's kind of important. But they don't lend themselves to outlining. They're just compilations uh, to back up uh, what he's saying at that particular point. So some, you won't see a continuous 1 through 33, and that's part of the reason why. We will cover the ones that are um, the linchpins of what he's doing. And one of those we've got today uh, on the definition of the hypostatic union We'll go from here to the three genre of the hypostatic union, and one will get light treatment, but I'll give it to you on paper. Number two will get light treatment, but I'll give it to you on paper. And three is where all the marbles are. Uh, the genus of majesty, which is what all of this finally focuses on. And that basically, we're going to find out, is the claim that without there being a confusion of the two natures, the divine in Jesus shows itself forth through the human, through his body, through the human nature. Um, And when Chemnitz did this, he didn't just think that he was in line with Scripture, though he did, and he packs it with Scripture, He doesn't just think he's in line with the ancient church, though he is. He's going up against, um, already, the Reformed, who um, imagine that we have confused the two natures. They think that we've got only one nature in Christ, which is a schmudge of the divine and human, so that it's neither really divine nor human, it's this... God-man, and we look at the Reformed and say, you know, I'm not sure, but I think you have a schizophrenic Christ with a multi-personality. So goes the 500-year-old argument. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning of this course, this book is called The Second Greatest Work on the Person of Christ in the Whole History of the Western Church. Amazing that... uh, Chemnitz did what he did. Um, Highly sophisticated stuff. Now today, I'm going to highlight major things, and probably we won't have time to do some of the detail work, but I've tried to lay it out for you on paper. All right, with that in mind, the introduction. Christians often speak of the hypostatic union on the basis of the definition person as similar to that of the union of body and soul. Scripture teaches that the incarnation is a work of the entire trinity, and then the passages. Three, we've already shown and proved from clear passages of Scripture that first, not only one, but two complete and perfect natures are present in the incarnate Christ, and secondly, that neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit, but only the Son, has assumed into the unity of his own person a true human nature. Not the Father, not the Spirit. Four. Two. 
We have also already shown by many testimonies from Scripture that these two natures do not exist by themselves or of themselves apart from or separately from one another. That's part of what Dale was doing with you last week. So the natures haven't been mixed together or mingled to make some third nature, God-man. There's no abolition of either one of the natures or conversion of one into the other. But scripture teaches that the deity dwells in Christ bodily. Colossians 2.9 The word was made flesh in such a way that these two natures in the incarnate Christ, although not separated and placed apart from one another but united, yet are and remain complete, unimpaired, distinct, and different both in substance and essential attributes as we've shown shown from the scripture in chapters 2 and 3. Not by commingling of natures, but by assumption. Now, what does he mean by that? That at a particular point in time, when the time had fully come, Galatians, that the second person of the Trinity, the Word, assumed to himself a true human nature. Where? In the uterus of Mary, that's where. He took to himself a true human nature. Then there's a section on distinguishing this from uh, other modes of God's presence. Five, the chief question, how are the two natures in Christ joined together? Or of what nature is the hypostatic union of the two natures in Christ and where it is the difference from other modes of indwelling or union with the deity determined? So he's going to argue that this is unique, this particular uh, union. It's finally a mystery, but he says, if it's there in Scripture, that's there for a reason, and we should comprehend at least what God's given to us in Scripture. Then he admits it's easier to say what it isn't than what it is. Uh, Not this, not this, not in this way, not in this way, not in this way. So, six, the method. We'll divide the matter into sections. First, the human nature did not assume the divine, nor did man assume God, nor did the divine person assume a human person, but the divine nature of the Logos, or God the Logos, or the person of the Son, subsisting from eternity in the divine nature, no body, assumed in the fullness of time a particular unity of human nature, so that in Christ the assuming nature... The Logos is the divine, and the assumed nature is the human. And then the passages. In Christ's case, his divine nature existed from eternity, no body, and assumed at a particular point in time the entity of the human nature in the act of conception. Passage, 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 passage. Uh, All of those you have and can take a look at. Second, the ancient councils say that the two natures in Christ are united indivisibly so that they can, cannot be divided or torn apart from each other. They're united inseparably so that never, even in eternity, can they be separated from each other. Alice's comments that prior Sunday, she said, I never realized in all my catechetical training in Lutheranism that right now he still has a body. Chemnitz is going to argue that. Uh, 
the passages after his resurrection, you know, uh, Thomas, uh, reading into it a little bit, my guess is that in the passage on the Emmaus Road, that uh, he said okay to them inviting him to dinner, and when they were at the table, they recognized him. This is Rosenblatt guessing. How did they recognize him? It's a guess, not in the text. Particularly, yeah, he broke bread. And the angel said to the disciples at the ascension, this same Jesus who now is taken from you will return, this same one. So uh, it'll be with body forever, never to be divided, lost, separated, or any of that. Okay, third, the fact that these two natures have been joined together and united to constitute in the incarnate Christ one hypostasis is related to the former specific difference in the human union. Again, two natures in Christ without conversion or commingling, but not two Christs, only one, and the passages. Fourth, it's also important to indicate and acknowledge in some manner the former specific difference of this secret and incomprehensible uh, hypostatic union. Uh, From eternity, the Logos uh, was a simple hypostasis, divine. Through the incarnation, he becomes a composite being, divine and human. Uh, The assumed nature is attached to the complete fullness of his deity, not to some portion. Colossians 2.9 does not permit a separation or absence of one nature from the other. Um, Fifth, now, after the incarnation, the person of the Logos cannot and ought not to be considered or made an object of faith outside of or without or separate from the assumed nature nor in turn the assumed flesh be considered outside of and without the Logos. So it's normal to worship the Christ, including his body. That's normal, not abnormal. And here the evangelical goes, I don't know if that's right. Is that that true? Because of the way we will emphasize luck. You cannot spiritualize him. Even now, ascended, you cannot do that. Uh, And the evangelical is going to give us a fight on that because it sounds not spiritual. Uh, There is no Christian denomination in the whole Western Christian church where you will have the humanity of Christ simply argued for and not surrendered. That's why Luther was at his best at Christmas. Calvin could never out-preach Luther at Christmas. Never. Wouldn't even be a fair fight. He wouldn't. There was no way. All right. Over on the next page. Sixth. The two natures in Christ are joined together not only through contiguity or proximity, really, really close, nature's really, really, really close, 
but rather as fire penetrates, permeates, and embraces heated iron, or as a soul is given to the body. Uh, this is the background to the supper. Huh? That unleavened bread somehow conveys to us the very same body that was crucified on the cross and that cheap wine from Ralph's somehow conveys to us the very blood shed that afternoon on that cross in that city. And the claim is nothing less. So this is all background to that. Uh, Notice two under there. The Logos shines forth, illuminates the assumed nature, shines forth in the whole person. Now there's a way in which the evangelicals sort of get this. When they start arguing, doing apologetics for miracle, they sort of get that, For they get a glimpse of it, that Jesus healed that guy by spitting in the dirt and making mud and putting it on his eyes, and the woman who uh, uh, had a hemorrhage, so forth, she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. So in a way, they sort of get it a little. Seventh. Because it's beyond all controversy that this union is a great mystery, the passages of Scripture often describe it by noting the things which result from this union. Just as in other matters, it's common in the descriptions to show the effects and the consequences. Uh, The natures remain intact, but there is a real communion between them. They're not in watertight compartments. Um, the divine shows itself through the human in Jesus. Um, and then he compares it to other kinds of uh, genera or predications. Uh, it is not incorrect to say that in this case, God is man and man is God. Or the son of man is the son of the living God. Or... The son of Mary is the son of God. Or the angel, that holy thing which is born of Mary is called the son of the Most High. And right then, it's already in her uterus, or he. The son of God is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The branch of David is Yahweh. The word is made flesh. Okay? says Chemnitz, in this case and only in this case, we can talk like that because Scripture does. In brief, because the two natures are united in Christ to form one united hypostasis and not a composite nature, therefore one nature is not predicated of the other, but the concrete quality of the one nature is predicated of the concrete quality of the other. I think that's a philosophical way of saying, don't think for a minute we're saying man is God or God is man. We're talking about this particular one and none other. You can't generalize. Never is man God or God man except here. So in this particular case, it's legitimate to talk like that. And Scripture does. Peter said at Pentecost, you crucified the Lord of glory. You don't think of Lord of glory being crucifiable. But in this case, Peter's telling us, Something that's, we can talk like that in this case, only this case. Second place, 
Because of the hypostatic union of the two natures, whether the person is called God or man, the entire person must always be understood. Part of the attack of this book is, please don't talk about the divine nature did this or the human nature did that. Let other denominations do that. Don't talk like that. That was the divine nature doing this. Oh, that was the human nature doing that. Hemnet said, limit that. Just talk about the whole Christ, the whole God-man. And uh, let's not us do that other stuff. Okay? Uh, Let's see. The entire person, okay. Third place, because of the union of the two natures in Christ do not act separately, but as Chalcedon says, each nature in Christ performs in communion with the other, that which is proper to it. We're going to do more of that while we do the genre of the the union. Fourth, this intimate uniting of the assuming and the assumed natures brings about the fact that although as a result of this union nothing is added to or subtracted from the divine nature. Uh, the divine nature is complete. The Logos always was fully divine from all eternity. Yet, in the human nature of Christ, because of this union, there are not only natural attributes, not only particular and finite gifts which inhere formally in the humanity, but also because of this union, the human nature in Christ not only has the whole fullness of the deity dwelling in it personally, but at the same time, according to the scripture, receives the divine majesty which has been given and communicated to it along with divine power, wisdom, life, and other qualities. When we get to this section on the third uh, genus of the union, this is the core of what he's going to argue. By his death, resurrection, and ascension, there was nothing to add to his divine nature. He already possessed it and always did and always will. But with regard to the human nature, infinite qualities are granted to him, including to his human nature. Thus, the Thomas account. The room being locked, he appeared amongst them and said, Peace be unto you. Great problem to Calvin. Bodies don't go through oak doors that are locked. Or the Emmaus Road, and he was with them no more. Problem. Huh? And the the Lutherans say, Look, don't measure risen Jesuses by Newton. Now, Newton was later, but you get the idea. He wrote physics. He does with his human nature what he says he's going to do with it. You do well to bend the knee. If he says, this is my body, bend your knee. What do you know about risen Jesuses? And don't say that cannot be. Zwingli. This is all background to the supper. The human nature does what he wants to do with it because it was granted infinite gifts through his life, death, and resurrection. And you would do well to just say, yes, sir. 
So would I. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Okay, let me throw it open for questions. That's, uh, we're, we're already seeing what's coming. Um, and, and it will. We, will. we will divide these into uh, the genre uh, later on. And especially the third, I'll ask you to be here for that because that's where all the marbles are. The other two are here and are there, but we'll go through them. Rod, in light of the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity has a human nature from eternity. Is that correct? No. Oh, I thought you said that. So tell me what the truth is. He assumes a human nature at a particular point in time. But now, isn't it correct to say that that's his for eternity? Yes. Okay, so now explain to me the difference. Right, what, right because now he's got it from eternity because of the incarnation. For eternity he, forwards. But, the, but in eternity, there is no forward or backward, well, I, is there? I'm not going to get into I that. Mean, God, I mean, I know exactly and, forward what, and backward is only about time, not, I know, and precisely I know exactly, not about eternity. I know exactly what time means, so you ask me to define it. Or as Henry Thank Ford you, said, it's one damn thing after another. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get into the nature of time. You can do that. That's your field. Let me see if I can articulate this clearly. I understand that if he's all God and all man, and then when he died on the cross, did God die? Uh, we walk right along the edge of that. The ancient heresy is called patripassionism. And we say, no, God didn't die. God the Son died. And already all other Christians are really, really watching, listening to hear what we're going to say, because we're pretty close to that. Yeah, we take our chances with that particular heresy. I don't think we go into it, but we're closer to it than other Christians. <clears throat> we do not want to divide the sun, you know. What was his nature when he was crying out to the Father from the cross? Got me. The, the cry of dereliction from the cross? That's inter-Trinitarian. And unless I have other passages to help me, I'm stuck. The son cries out to the father that he's bereft, orphaned, alone. I'll give you a speculation, because I don't have other scripture, but it's just a speculation. Carrying the sin of the whole race from all time, it seems to appear to the son that the father has deserted. Or you can say, well, he's, as every other word from the cross, quoting the Old Testament. But when you get into the inter-Trinitarian relationship, I go, gosh, unless he tells me, I don't know. I don't know. Sorry. Robert? Yeah, I've got a question regarding all of this. Why can't you just simply say that, that men are constrained, us men are constrained by time? Uh-huh, that's what God, God said. Yeah, and God isn't. And yeah. when Jesus entered into our time, he was constrained to our time. But when he rose again, he's not. Yeah, I, I think the answer scripturally is somewhat along those lines. And at some point to shut up. Say, I don't know. But... 
That's not to say that uh, the philosophers don't have a right to ask the question. They'll just probably, for people like me, be disappointed in the answer or the attempted answer and so forth. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Augustine speaks of time as if it's a creation, just like the external universe. Time is an objective creation. And you can have another philosopher that defends pretty well that time is something that is subjective. The human subject is sort of bringing that to the case, whether he knows it or not, but he should know that he is. And at this point, I'm headed for the bar. <laughs> Rod, if I could for just... For a martini. If I could just follow up on Bob's point. Um, the problem I have with Bob's point is it seems to me what he just said, and maybe I'm wrong, is that the hypostatic union started at a certain point in time and exists in time only. Well, throughout it started all time a, from... The claim is certainly that it started at a particular point in time. Right, That's for sure. Right. But it seems like he's saying, and, and it exists basically in time. And for all points in time after the incarnation... Right, there's a God that, right, Christ, God is man, as it were. Yes, I think Kemner would say yes. But that doesn't, that's not God from eternity being man, which is the claim. The claim is no, that God. No, it's not. The claim is, no. that, is that in eternity, God is man. No, isn't it? it is not. Eternity forwards. But, okay, so now we're See, back to the. I, we're back to what is time. Eternity, no, we're not going to get out of this. Forward or backward that's in why eternity. I said no. Because it will lead back to this. Sorry. It just crosses my mind when Christ ascended, he ascended bodily, and he, we are told he will return bodily. Now, right. what he's like, I assume that he's going to maintain right. that nature, but. Sure. I have another question. It might or might not relate to what we're talking about. Is there significance to what? In, the, in this, what we're discussing, to what um, happened in the garden after Christ's resurrection when Mary was going to, or touched Christ and he said, don't touch me. I don't know. I don't have a lot of parallel passages to that. I find a lot of things that are, that are really interesting about it. Um, she didn't know who he was until he spoke her name. She said, Rabbi, it's you. Gosh, I don't know. He was somehow the same, but not exactly the same after his resurrection. I mean, I have all kinds of questions about that. And I have the foggiest idea what that passage means without other scripture to help me. Don't touch me for I'm not yet ascended to the Father. I don't know. Can you think of any other passage I'm forgetting that would help here? I can't. There are a lot of times when somebody like me is going to disappoint as a professor for the number of times I say, I don't know. I don't know. I can't get help from other passages. When I was an agnostic and first came into contact with Christians who were willing to say, I don't know, I was stunned. And they separated their clever religious ideas from what the text of the New Testament actually said. 
And as a scientist, I said, all right, all right, finally. Somebody who doesn't think that their latest thought is from the Holy Spirit or something or other and goes to the text, and if the text doesn't answer it, these guys said, I don't know. For an agnostic, that was wonderful, just wonderful. All right, let's call it a day. All right, we're going to pause right there, and uh, we're going to pay some bills. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Part six coming up of a Two Natures in Christ lecture right after this. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. (laughs) And just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low 
prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, innovation is not what Christian theologians or pastors are called to, but properly understand when what the Scripture says and what the Scripture doesn't speak, we don't speak. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. That's right, this is a partnership. This is a two-way street here. We do the work, we do the prep, you are edified, you grow, you learn, you weep, you cry, you laugh, you grow. And as a result of it, you say, you know, I want to I want to support this ministry because of how much it's benefited me and, and other people. The way you do that, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, uh, you're signing up to automatically contribute on a monthly basis. $6.95. That's it. Not much money, but it means the world to us because the more people that join our crew and the more we can count on that six ninety five across a broad spectrum of listeners, the more it levels out our giving on a month-to-month basis so that we can properly budget our month's expenses and bills and uh, hopefully grow, uh, continue to grow our uh, listening audience and, uh, and continue the reach of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're going to continue with uh, uh, part six of our lecture series on uh, the two natures in Christ. The reason I put two of them together is because part five was, well, it was only 30 minutes long, and uh, and part six is only 45 minutes long. So you figure, you know, squish the two together into one Grand episode, you know, <clears throat> right? You, you understand what I'm saying. So, without any further ado, here is Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Now, a little disclaimer at the beginning: we are still at looking at the details of the hypostatic union of the two natures. But what we're doing this morning, I would call sort of formal. That is. If there are a few things that don't make some sense, we're going to do them later, but we're going to do them with passages. This morning, we're not going to do it primarily with passages. Now, Lutheran pastors always get a little nervous about that sort of thing, and I think we should. But if you have detailed questions about, yes, but what about the verses? They're coming. They're coming. So indulge me. Uh, today as we do something that's uh, kind of formal but still necessary as background. Trust me, we're going to do the detailed verses. Uh, This is sort of an overview, and the rest of the book is going to be dwelling on the sorts of categories that he's got here in this chapter. All right? What we've done so far, uh, we've spoken of the two natures in Christ, 
<clears throat> and we've tried to explain the hypostatic union in the, in the, of these natures in as simple and as clear a way as we could. Now, says Chemnitz, we've got to add an explanation of what arises from this union and what follows from it. He has a warning about being careful uh, to people like me to speak of these things uh, carefully, <clears throat> take linguistic care, stay consonant with the historic faith. And he's going to, or he says, here we're going to leave dealing with phraseology and argue from facts. Okay, that's his intro. What are the facts? First one he lists is these two natures don't subsist individually or by themselves. Rather, the person of Christ subsists in the two natures. The divine nature of Christ is perfect. By the incarnation, it has nothing added to the divine nature. <clears throat> nothing could be added to the divine nature. It's perfect. It's complete. But he's going to argue with regard to the human nature in Christ... It retains its essential characteristics, but also, and here's where the marbles are, from the union with the divine, the human nature receives above and beyond itself many wonderful, preeminent, marvelous dignities and such and so forth. There's where the marbles are. And he says, we're not talking just verbal here. We're talking something real, something that actually occurred in the external world, the world of fact, the incarnate Christ. Now, to give you a clue, this is again background to the supper. And it's also, we're going to find out later on, he's going to claim it's also seeable in the text of Scripture. I, I've used before, and I'll use again, the illustration of the Emmaus Road, where the risen Christ all of a sudden joins these two depressed guys. You know, we thought we'd found the Messiah, and they killed him. And are you the only one who doesn't know this? And they end up going through the greatest Bible study in the history of... 2,000 years, where he opens their eyes to understand everything that Moses and the prophets spoke concerning him. How it was necessary that the Messiah would die and rise again the third day. And then at dinner, he was gone. Well, how can you be gone? If you're a true man, how can you be gone? This is background to that. Or the Thomas account. The doors being locked, he stood amongst them and said, Peace be unto you. Yeah, but the doors were locked. And the Lutheran says, No problem. And Calvinists say he must have known some entryway into there that the rest didn't know existed. Okay? Classic division here. And it's in Christology. I remember one time we were meeting in Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, to form what we call the Cambridge Declaration. And, 
everybody and their brother was invited. I mean, professors from Trinity and Beeson Divinity School, all conservative. But I mean, there were more Baptists than there were people there. And uh, everybody. (laughs) And what we wanted to find out was who would sign on to Sola Grazia, Sola Fide, Sola Scriptura, Sola Deo Gloria, out of all this pack. Well, um, the Lutherans, of course, had to make the decision as to where do we meet afterwards for cigar and drinks. And uh, we got Jack Preuss, who had, for some reason, been given a large suite there. Uh, We asked if we could use his room, and he said, sure, absolutely, come on up. So I I came in a little late. And as I came into the room and was looking for the bar or where the drinks were, I passed by Dr. Horton. And he was standing there with a scotch, and he was surrounded by six Fort Wayne profs, and the subject was Christology. And he looked over and smiled at me, and he said, I'll bet you love this, Rod. <laughs> it was the right subject by the right guys with the right opponent going on there. Uh, so the classic claim from the Reformed is he cannot be present at your altar according to his body and his blood because he's truly man and he's locatable at the right hand of the Father is where he is. He's there. There were cartoons in the 16th century by the Lutherans of the risen Christ chained at the right hand of the Father. A lot of, a lot of the polemics were done through cartoons uh, in the 16th century. So there's where, this is what Chemnitz is going to get to later. He can be truly human and he can be present according to his body which was crucified and his blood which was shed on the cross, and he can be truly present where the Lord's Supper is celebrated. So that's getting a little bit ahead of the story. The term koinonia, or communion, argues Chemnitz. The ancients included all of these things under the general word koinonia, or communion, The full would be communion of attributes between the two natures in Christ without there being a confusion of natures. He said this is how the, and he has a whole list of quotations from the ancients. And he said if you don't have a hypostatic union where there's some kind of communion of properties where the deity shows itself through Christ's body, you don't have a union at all. He's starting the fight with the Reformed. Um, Anybody who imagines a union without this kind of communion deceives both himself and others. Then he admits many shrink from the use of the term because the reason they're afraid is you're walking right into where the deity and the humanity just mix like in a blender and it's all over. He said, You may be afraid of that, but the ancients weren't. They talked like this. He was saying, I'm not doing anything brand new here or original. 
The early church fathers spoke like this, and they weren't afraid of the term. So, how is this to be understood? Surely not a communication that would make the property of the one nature the property of the other. That would be a mixing of the natures. So it can't be that. It's got to be a communion which doesn't permit the natures to be confused. Um, And again, he cites many quotations from the church fathers. I don't quote them. You can find those in the book if you're interested. And the passages he quotes, and these will be listed for you when I give it out to you, a replacement for what you've got today, so you don't have to write them down. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, that's the Pauline benediction, 2 Peter 1, 4, and Hebrews 2, 14. He concludes, we can retain and use the term communion or communication of attributes and not be afraid. It's not new, it's not innovating, it's not foreign to the scriptures, the ancients were right, uh, and so forth. Now, one of the confirming things about this is when the Augsburg Confession was presented and the Roman Catholics whipped together quickly their answer, they should not have done that. It's one of the worst pieces of scholarship in the history of Rome, but they didn't figure it was worth it for a drunken monk in Germany to give it a whole lot of time. When they wrote the confutation, they said, what they're saying with regard to the person of Christ, we have no problem with. That wasn't where the fight was. Later on, it sure was with the reform, though. Okay? There's an argument by some as to whether this hypostatic union is just verbal or real slash actual. When we say that something is attributed to one nature uh, of the other, we're not just talking about verbally. We're talking about it really, actually, truly, or he said whatever word you want to say. And we can distinguish it from a fictitious communion. God was certainly not only verbally, but really a human being. And in the verbal thing we're saying, we're saying God, the Son, took up residence in the uterus of Mary at one time and went full term and was born and so forth. But again, he warns, we're not saying that the divine nature is a human nature, not saying that. When we say something like Scripture says, the Son of God died... We're saying what it looks like. It isn't just verbal. That's what happened. Peter says, you crucified the Lord of glory. Well, you don't think Lord of glory being crucified or dying. It's an odd way to talk. That's just a clue as to some of the verses. Or in Romans 1, that the eternal son has a genealogy and it goes through him, but not through him. It's an odd way to talk. But Scripture talks that way. We'll we'll look later on. And he said, we're not talking about the divine nature in itself dying, but we are talking about the person with two natures. He died. Okay? 
Now, he said, we can do this whole thing in one definition. But first, he says, I need to make a few distinctions before we do that. What he's going to do here is to say, there are genera, genre of this union. There be three of them. And they're not the same. In other words, not only is there a union of the two natures, in the one person of Christ, but, again, this is Aristotle using taxonomy, there are three sort of subdivisions that are legit, biblically legit. He said, these aren't concocted, not something we poured into our heads, but the facts themselves, if considered, show this distinction. The ancient church taught this in almost the same way and almost the same words. This is not new. We always had to take a jab at the Roman Catholics because the charge was always that we were innovators and a sect. And we didn't just say, no, we're not a sect. They went on the offensive, and they said, not only are we not a sect, we're more in line with the the ancients than you are. So... Love the attitude, even if the details were wrong. Love the attitude. Okay. Um, Sophists, people who are philosophers slash lawyers, are always trying to overturn a doctrine by quibbling over terminology. The ones of that day contend there's only one category here, one genus that can really be called a communication of attributes. We're going to show, on the basis of the doctrine, there isn't just one, there are three. Three separate genera which derive from it. And we'll show that these matters which arise and follow from the union are not the same as each other, not of the same structure and so forth. Okay, here we go. And the following chapters are going to be on these three he's going to mention. So this is just summary. Okay? First genus, we've already shown there are and remain in one Christ two complete and distinct natures, the divine and the human. Each possesses its own attributes without confusion or abolition, again, again, again. Um, These two natures in Christ don't subsist individually or by themselves or separately. There's one Christ... There's not one Christ who's God, uh, Christ the God, and another who's Christ the man. They're united. One person, one Christ who is at the same time fully God and fully man. Therefore, the attributes of the natures in Christ are not attributed only to that nature uh, which, of which they're a property. They are distributed, um, and that there is a communication of the attributes within that one person of Christ without conversion into the other, without confusion in the natures, the deity does not become humanity or the humanity deity. Otherwise, there would be a commingling. But, quote, and yet, just as Luther rightly says, the hypostatic union of the two natures in the one person of Christ does not permit the kind of division whereby I can properly say The divine nature of Christ is doing this, or the human nature is doing that. 
That's what he wants to avoid. Now, was Luther being original? No, he wasn't. Again, there's a long history of this. And overall, he's going to plead for the rest of the book. Don't talk about a nature doing something and the other nature doing something else. Don't talk like that. Talk about the whole person of Christ. Okay. So we're not going to divide the person, but we're going to find later on in the passages the property characteristic of one nature is communicated or attributed to the person in the concrete. That is, just in Jesus, the concrete Messiah. We're not talking about generals here. We're going to predicate about the one historic person, not about deity or humanity, but the concrete. The first category here then is when that which is proper to one nature is predicated of the person. What person? Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Second place. This wondrous union of the two natures took place in such a way that those things which pertain to the office of the Christ, the Messiah, the Son, he was unwilling to accomplish only in one of his natures, either divine or human, but rather in, with, and through each. Therefore, the descriptions and works of the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, king, are attributed again to his person, not according to only one nature, according to both, the person. Each nature, again, has its own properties, uh, but it does not have its own separate actions or carry out activities separately from the humanity or the humanity from the deity. He quotes Chalcedon, each nature in Christ performs in communion with the other that which is proper to each. This, he said, is simply derived from the hypostatic union. He'll do the passages later on. Example, when in the names of the offices, again, prophet, priest, and king, when in the names of the offices that which is attributed to the person of Christ applies to him according to both natures, and we'll find verses like that. Or when in the activities of the one person of Christ, each nature participates in communion with the other in the action which is proper and natural to it. And then he talks about how this differs from the first one. You can do that on your own. Uh, Again, Luther is going to say the person uh, is how we should talk. Now the third one, and last one, and and that'll be it for the day, and I'll... uh, I'll throw it open for discussion. Third one, and this is where the marbles are. If you want to really impress your friends and confound your enemies, it's the genus of majesty or the genus myostaticum in Latin. The third one, and again, this is where he's going to argue the deity of Jesus shows forth through his body through his humanity. Now, an evangelical doesn't have a lot of trouble with this. He doesn't have the categories, but once you do it from the scriptures, many times the evangelical will nod yes. Or back in my day, they would. Uh, evangelicals wouldn't be Osteen. They'd be intervarsity. You know, it was a different world. 
Uh, but if, if in earlier times the evangelical would have said, I think that's biblical. I think I know a few other verses like that too. Not the Reformed. Here you're going to have a fight. I told you about doing a Ligonier conference where I did a little of this. And R.C. got up in the first plenary session and said, and on this, Rosenblatt's wrong. To which the whole audience probably said, who's Rosenblatt and who cares whether he's wrong? (laughs) But they're adamant. They're adamant about this. We'll find out some about that later on. Third one. In the divine nature of Christ, again, there can be no change, diminution, or addition. But the assumed human nature in Christ not only has and retains all of its natural properties, here it is, but beyond and in addition to those properties, because of the union, it is also adorned and enriched with and increased and exalted by innumerable and excellent preeminences and dignities and excellences or whatever you want to call excellencies or whatever you wish to call them which are above every name that is named, not only in this life, but the life to come. The human nature of Christ receives these from the divine nature. It doesn't go the other way. The divine nature doesn't need anything, period. It's complete. But the human nature, by the incarnation, has these gifts communicated to it By the union, he uses the word interpenetration and then has to defend that a lot in the later part of the book, whether that's confusing the natures. Um, But key thing here is that the human nature of Jesus, especially after the resurrection, is glorified in such a way that you don't want to start placing rules over it. We don't know what glorified Messiah's bodies can do, so we would do best to listen to Scripture and shut up. That's what he's going to argue later on in the book. Okay, and then how this genus is different from the two preceding ones, I think I'll let you do That on your own, you can look at those after you get that next week, the detailed one. But he attempts to say these are, I'll tell you how they're not the same. But all the marbles are in number three. We'll go through one later on. We'll go through two later on. But all the marbles are in three. The genus of majesty. Then, says Chemnitz, this is a simple, clear, correct, and not unsuitable presentation of the entire teaching. Um, of what? Of the things which originate with the hypostatic union of the two natures in Christ's uh, person and follow from it. Um, Again, he says, this is not something we've dreamed up. The church fathers, especially Cyril and Leo, um, on the basis of Damascenus' work, taught exactly this in exactly the same way and with the distinctions that I'm using here. Then he summarizes the four basic points. You'll get those uh, next time. I don't think they were, I think they were um, uh, in outline software. They're called heisted, hidden. 
Um, so you'll see that next time, and you can do that on your own. And finally, says Chemnitz, I shall now proceed to an orderly explanation of this doctrine as it's taught to us in Scripture using these three genera. Okay, that's an introduction to the rest of the book. Okay, that's a lot, I know, in a short time. And again, as in what uh, Dr. Brandt did, pretty formal. But when we get to the verses, I think it'll make more sense. As Chemnitz illustrates from... um, Jesus after his resurrection, Emmaus Road, and Thomas, and other places. The over of this, I've already mentioned the supper, which is probably the main one. But the other thing is that uh, Lutherans can celebrate Christmas in a way that's difficult for other Christians. Uh, when you get Luther at Christmas, Calvin can't touch him. He can't touch him. And there's a reason for it. Luther believes in an incarnation and a fleshliness in the person of the Messiah that is glorious, just absolutely glorious, even crucified, glorious. Um, and again, Chemnitz would say this with Luther, this is not something new. It's really drawn from Scripture. He's going to try and convince you. But the thing I think of first is Christmas. Um, I think Pastor Hodel one time did what I did for years in parishes and preached Roland Bainton's compilation of all of Luther's Christmas sermons into one, did it at Yale. I transcribed that from a 33 LP record, probably illegal, but um, and then put it into a booklet form so that people could get it from the ushers as they walked out. But you listen to Luther do Christmas, nobody can touch Wesley can't touch him, Calvin can't touch him, Chrysostom can't touch him. Um, so that's part of what's going to come from this. It'll make your Christmas even more glorious. Okay, I'll stop with that. Dave. If you could help me, I was a little slow in the uptake on the number one genre. Um, I, I was, I've got for the second one, the offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, and third, the majesty of Christ. Do you have a term that you can quote for the you first You know, there one? is there in Latin, but I didn't put them in. We'll get them later on. We're going to do these in detail. The next thing we're going to do is one, two, three. Uh, I think that's how it is in the book. In, with the scriptures, um, there's the uh, genus apotalismaticum and the genus something, and then the genus myostaticum. But um, uh, I think it'll make sense once he does it with the scripture passages. So can I defer for just one more week or two on that, and we'll let him do it. Thanks, Art. Uh, doctor, I, earlier in the lecture, you mentioned uh, your visit to doc, to Preuss's um, uh, room. Yes, at Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge. And you mentioned that Dr. Horton, some of us don't know who he is. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. He's, he's the Calvinist's Calvinist. All right. He's a co-host with me on the White Horse Inn. He is a total genius. And the most wonderful thing... 
combined with that, is being a total genius, is that he doesn't believe his own press reports. He has no errors. A-I-R-S, none. Delightful. Delightful. I have one more question. Uh You mentioned something about um, evangelicals and reformed. Right. Could you explain the distinction? Sure. Very important. If you're in a, a wider Christian circle and you do what our LCMS pastors do, and they've been trained to do it, I'm going to be speaking to a group of them back in Minneapolis, and I'm going to tell them to repent of this. <laughs> if you're in front of a broad Christian group, and there are a lot of Calvinists there, and you call them evangelicals, they'll be totally offended. To them, that means Arminian. They might just walk out of the room because they think you're an idiot, an uneducated idiot. And correlatively, on the other side, if you have a large evangelical gathering and you call them Calvinists, their hands will be in the air and they'll say, I am not. Whatever I am, I'm not one of those. As it's gone in America, where was the first use of the word evangelical after the New Testament? It's from evangelion in Greek, good news. What was the first group to lay claim to that as their name? It was the Lutherans. If you go to Germany today, there are churches which are evangelisch, that's you, and there are churches which are catholisch. Okay? Over here in America, we lost that in the sense of a name. If a German comes over and looks at your cornerstone and it says St. Luke's Evangelical Lutheran Church, I'll ask, why, why do you put it there twice? It's redundant. But in America, evangelical as a term has been co-opted for the most part by Wesley and the Wesleyans and the revivalists. And at its high point, and you can guess, I'm not going to say its high point was revivalism, and boy, am I not. But at its high point, you have the founding of Fuller Theological Seminary. That is, a group that held a high view of the inspiration of Scripture, a high view of Christ and his death on the cross, the importance of the new birth, and so forth, and they needed guys there with real PhDs, not seminary degrees, university degrees, because they realized that they were out of the wider conversation. They needed to have a seminary with people with genuine university degrees. They were right. The times were pretty glorious. Um, Graham's crusades were drawing thousands. And the ones at the top said, we've got to have the scholarly undergirding that supports what Graham is doing in city after city throughout the world. God bless them. And they put together a faculty. They would have called themselves evangelical, a faculty that was way beyond what old Charles Fuller was ever capable of doing on his radio show, uh, but he blessed it. He knew it was important. So as you say, evangelical today 
it usually means Arminian, Wesleyan, Christianity Today, back when it really was a journal, not as it's fallen to today, but it once was a real journal. Um, Fuller in its early days before it went down the drain. Uh, And some pretty glorious things. When you say reformed, it means one thing and only one thing. 120 proof Calvinism. Now, we even have in our books in the LCMS guys, professors who use or have used the word reformed to mean everybody who isn't Lutheran or Roman Catholic. Disaster. Disaster. Uh, We've got to stop doing that. I talk to seminarians. They still blunder into it. And so I try as politely as I can to say, you want to distinguish those. Because if you're speaking in a broader Christian audience, you want to be precise about that, or you have no idea, you'll have no idea why 50% of the room packs up its suitcase or its briefcases and walks out the back door. But they will. I'm glad you clarified that. Is that fair, Chris? I have one more question. Sure. Jesus performed miracles. That uh-huh. was the person, Jesus. Uh-huh. We want to say the person of person, Christ. Right. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, I'm confused about the uh, why the Reformed are so adamant. adamant about him knowing a secret way into the upper room and so on. I mean, he'd already done things, at, 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 right, where he passed through the crowds and so on. And my gosh, Philip you know, comes out of the water and now he's somewhere else. I mean, it's, he's not even, he's not even, I don't understand what the hangup is here. It, I'll, it's a, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate. And I have a lot of really strong reformed friends, but I still, I'm going to speculate here. They see what's coming in the supper. Fair enough. That's Rosenblatt speculating. Yeah, fair enough. And why are we, I mean, several times you've said, um, you've made a point of glorified Jesus's. Why make the qualification? before? <laughs> right, because, again, he passed through the crowds before his yes. glorification. Yes, um, And Philip, again, was not a glorified Jesus. Right. Um, they're, they're good arguments, and there the Reformed would be with us. As long as there was no connection with the Supper, fine. They'll argue for the miracles of Jesus. Dr. Horton will do that as well as I do or better. All of that's okay. Um, I'm using terminology the same way our guys like Chemnitz and the authors in the Book of Concord are using it. But I still suspect that the umbrella is the Supper's coming. That's what I suspect. You're probably right. I, yeah. Does that, Chris, what would you say of that? Chris has a strong reform background. Uh, yeah, there's probably a little bit of, of the, the supper's coming, but I, I would say that in, in general, um, there's a discomfort when there's an overemphasis on the human nature. Oh. Um, and and I, I, But there's a distinction between that and the Gnostics. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I, I would say that, yeah, that 
there's a discomfort when you're starting when you're talking about the human nature. There's, Is it because we, liberals have done such bad things with yeah, it? Yeah, it's because of the Wesleyans and everything else, and it's because okay. yeah, I think there's a bunch of that in there. Yeah, but um, that would be my speculation okay. on it. Uh, but yeah, there's the supper is actually you know is is the issue. I think you're right on that. Um, but and then a, a question for you. Uh-huh. Um, as you're talking about the two natures here, you're being very careful to to really make sure that the uh, I would say that the uh, human nature is subsumed. Yeah. Or assumed. Assumed. The eternal Logos assumes to himself a nature that he didn't have from all eternity. He assumes to himself a human nature. And you're um, also being very careful that, that the, the things that we're seeing in the human nature, is, is you're ascribing back to the, the endowment to them by the divine nature. Right. And that we're going to do in detail, but that's where the marbles are. A yes or a no. He's going to either convince you of that or he's not. But that's where he's going. And then I'm sure you want to say something about Calvinists seeing Christ in uh, at the right hand of the Father, and then something about the supper, about that. Some yeah, some penetration. Yeah, we can go before the. Uh... Yeah, um, very simply, Doctor Horton believes that he's in line with Chalcedon, and I'm not, because I'm talking about the real body that was crucified on the cross and the real blood that was shed on the cross being offered in congregation after congregation by bread and wine. And he'll say, the body is locatable forever. I'm in line with Chalcedon. He was man. That means one place at one time. Bodies obey Newton. That wasn't the way it was argued in the 16th century, of course. But, and the Lutherans say, we simply disagree. And and the, I think for the reform, the discomfort actually has to, doesn't have to. It's it's not so much an understanding the position of the Lutherans as it is a fight against Rome, and they're what they're really fighting against. Sacramentalism. Is, correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. We'll try to distinguish ourselves from that. I mean, he was starting a fight with the reformed on every with the Romans on every page, even though this wasn't one of the ones where we really disagreed a lot. Uh, as he starts talking about that this was enough, sufficient, he's also starting a fight with them. The death of Christ saves by itself, nude. And, and if you, if I may, one more. Uh-huh. If, if, uh, if Christ is really present in the supper uh-huh. in something other than just some mysterious fashion, uh-huh. then we have to wrestle with, in a Reformed person's mind, then you have to wrestle with Christ being in some sense, offered, crucified, etc. Again, and then you run into the problem with passages of... of oh, sure. That's fine. All the Hebrews passages, once for all? Absolutely. Right. We'll, we'll be glad to do that once for all and do it over and over and over and over again. That we are not priests, and there's none of that re-sacrificing for the sake of the faithful who are sitting there. We hate it. And for the same passages... Alice. When we take the Lord's Supper, then, we are actually partaking of the divine and human nature of Christ. Yes. And particularly for the forgiveness of sins, not in general, but for very particular scriptural reasons. Um, And we're a thousand miles away from that this is your chance to remember Christ with everything that's in you and to remember your conversion or any 
of that. It's there because the scripture has do this in remembrance of me, but that's about it. Yeah. We'll go back to here. Take, drink. It's for you. Free. Have it. It, it, to me, it's particularly comforting, Pastor Hodel said a few years ago, when we're communing, we're communing with all the company of saints that went yeah. before us. The closest I can get to my father is Holy Communion. It is a, it's, it's so holistic. It's so everything to me that I cannot believe somebody saying, I'm just doing this myself because I remember. Yeah. You know, it, it's too important. A few friends and I did some visiting of evangelical congregation evening services. One of them was and I tried to cut him a lot of slack because they were without a pastor. But there were several stations set up with crosses. And if you felt you were ready, you went and communed yourself. Incredible. Incredible. I'd always thought of when I took communion as what is taking place is outside of time. So, well, I mean, perhaps I'm completely whacking out on that no, idea. No, but, no. but in that thought, if you are partaking of Christ in his death and resurrection, uh-huh. then it's not happening a second time. You're, in essence, you're able to go to that one moment in time when it happened. If you're outside of time, there's, there's no linear Thing happening. Yeah. It's, I, I don't want to get into the nature of time. No, I, I never know. Finish. But, <laughs> but I mean, is that the, idea just probably, way off? Or? Probably the older fellows would say, he bridges the gap for you freely and graciously rather than we do anything but receive. I'm not implying that we're doing something. Yeah. I'm just saying. That's the way it, they'd say in, it. But they, the they wouldn't have a problem happening. talking yeah. like that, I don't think. Okay. You bring your sin to the table, and the Father brings the Son in his flesh and blood for you. Right? All right, I'll pass out to you next week a fuller uh, edition of this. Also, some others which you can add to your paper, but we're not going to cover in class. Those I'll just pass out to you next Sunday along with a fuller version of what you got today, which will replace what you got today. All right. Thanks for your attention. Appreciate it. And I'll see you again next Sunday. There you go. Part five and part six on the two natures of Christ. Great stuff. This is not a uh, shallow Bible study by any stretch of the imagination. It requires some in-depth cognitive thinking and in-depth understanding of what the scriptures teach and uh, and you turn around and confess that as being true. All right, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Visit our website and uh, support us as uh, so that we can continue bringing this outreach to you as well as to the world. Fightingforthefaith.com is our website. Click one of the two friendly yellow buttons there, and uh, believe me, you won't regret that you've done that because when you do that, you partner with us so that we can keep doing what we're doing and bringing to you what we continue to bring to you day in and day out here at Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. 
So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you could ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.